my mom would call me at three in the morning to like just shoot the shit. Remember the time she got my work email? And the only work email she ever sent me, I don't even know how she got my work email, <laughs> was just a like Google image of Blake Shelton. Stop no it. context, nothing. She just she has like a big crush on Blake Shelton. She just like Google imaged me photos of Blake Shelton oh. for like two days. <laughs> episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogab, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I just silenced my new iPhone. Oh, you do have a phone on you. I have three. (laughs) But none of them are currently working. Oh, okay. I cannot text any of them. Correct. This is the closest I've ever felt to a drug. <laughs> not to be confused with the time in college when I was not the one dealing the drugs, despite what you've put out on the interwebs. <laughs> yes. Hey, peeps and creeps, please, please, please sign up for our Patreon. And let me tell you why. The content is chef's kiss. It's great. We just released a bonus episode, which is so good. and. If you sign up, you get a thank you card and a sticker if you sign up on the $7 level. If you sign up on the $7 level, though, don't you dare. It made me go hunting around Facebook creeping for information, okay? Here's what I need. I need you to put your shipping address, and then I need you, if it's international, to tell me how to fill out an envelope because I am truly deceased trying to figure out (laughs) where these go. And if they will get to you. So, one, (laughs) fill out the shipping information. Patreon's not going to steal it and spam you. It's not going to be like you're getting stuff from the Red Cross for the rest of your life. It's just going to me. Or Scientology. Scientology. Yeah, I'm just going (laughs) to submit your stuff to Scientology. It's just going to me. And then secondly, if it's international, slide in my DMs and just help your girl out. Okay? There's there's really not one comprehensive resource on the internet on how to address international envelopes. We I've really tried. tried. Like we've Googled it. I've like, tried. Mogo's so been working on this for hard. since August. I know. <laughs> like there are international listeners that signed up in August. I can't, yeah, to I can't you, figure it out. We say thank you. You have not we received your card you. yet because Mogab doesn't know how to address the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, I get it. That's my own weakness. But I took it to USPS, and as helpful as I want to say they were, they were not. So mm-hmm. let me just put that there. Disclaimer. Okay. But you should sign up anyways because the content's great. Yeah. We did just release a bonus episode. You can get the bonus episodes and a shout out for $5 at the $5 level. And along with the bonus episodes, the sticker, the card at the $7 level, you also get our mini creeps. And we have, I think, like six or seven or we got a bunch on there of those. I got some good ones coming up, too, in the hopper that you don't even know about yet. I got them in the hopper. I can't wait. I can't no. wait. And then we have a $10 level, which I didn't consult you on this, but I figured you'd be all right. I decided, because I once misspoke on here and I said you get 20% off when it's really 10 So I just decided, you know, why isn't it 20 Well, You're just giving stuff away. Why are we stopping at 10? So 20% off. I've changed the code and everything. Oh. So yeah, that was me procrastinating when I was supposed to be writing a script. And I was like, what else can I do instead? This episode is sponsored by Prose. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, 
Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. Today, I'm telling you about the murder of Annie Lay. Big thanks to Alejandra Muller, maybe Mueller, sorry, who submitted this case. It was one I'd never heard of before and definitely one that deserves more attention. Are you ready? I think so. If you had one word to describe Annie Lay, that word would be exceptional. She was the child of Vietnamese immigrants, and at 24 years old, she'd already achieved so much success. She was valedictorian of her high school, voted most likely to be the next Einstein, She'd earned $160,000 in scholarship money and had graduated. (laughs) Good night. And she'd graduated from the University of Rochester with a major in cell developmental biology and a minor in medical anthropology. (laughs) I hate myself. (laughs) She went on to be accepted into a graduate program at Yale and was in her final year working toward a doctorate in pharmacology. Her research that she was working on had applications in the treatment of diabetes and certain forms of cancer. She wanted to be a biomedical researcher with the goal to one day cure cancer. Oh. I know. That ambition. But she wasn't just a brilliant, aspiring grad student at Yale. She was also described as fun-loving and endlessly energetic. On September 13th, 2009, Annie should have been living her best life. It was her wedding day, the day that she was to marry her college sweetheart, (gasps) Jonathan Wadoski, who was a graduate student in applied physics and mathematics at Columbia University. Wait, does something happen on someone's wedding day? Because I will quit right now. Yes and no. (sighs) By all accounts, the pair were truly in love. They were best friends, and they'd been together for a long time. They were so excited to be married in a lavish wedding ceremony on Long Island. Ugh. Annie had made the beaded veil for the ceremony herself, and they were planning to honeymoon in Greece after the wedding. Stop. But five days earlier, on September 8th, 2009, Annie Lay disappeared. Sorry, September September 2009. That's where we're at? Uh-huh. Ugh. Are you going to tell me where you were? Oh, well, I mean, obviously. I'm sure. Yeah, I was thriving. <laughs> I Yes. 2009, as we know, was one of my better years. Thank you. I'm sure you were, like, off in some foreign country, but I was in San Marcos, Texas, living my best life. She shared an apartment on Lawrence Street in New Haven, Connecticut, with her friend Natalie Powers. They'd been living together for about two years, and they were really good friends, too. They would, like, text each other back and forth throughout the day. And Annie left that apartment the morning of September 8th, and she took Yale Transit to the campus. But Natalie didn't hear from her all day, and she thought that was strange. They were usually in constant communication throughout the day. When Natalie still hadn't heard from her by 9 o'clock that night, she called the police to report her missing. Police arrived, and Natalie gave them all the information she could. She said that Annie never called her that day, which was very unusual for her. It was just uncharacteristic of Annie to fall out of communication like this. But it's been one day, right? Yes. But it's like about 9 o'clock at night that night. She should have been home. She's not answering her phone. Nobody has heard from her. Okay. So Yale University police begin a missing persons case, and they look into Annie's movements of the day. They talk to her research supervisor, her professors, to see if they'd met that day, just trying to establish a timeline of her day. They went to her office at Sterling Hall on the Yale campus, and they were surprised to find her purse there with her phone and wallet inside. But there was no sign of a struggle. It seemed like she'd left on her own and hadn't planned on being gone very long since she'd left her purse there. Like she like stepped out or something for a second. Right. Her work involved experiments on mice that were part of research into enzymes that could have implications for the treatment of cancer, diabetes, 
and muscular dystrophy. This involved hundreds of cages of mice, and Annie was about to be out for the next week to get married. So police are thinking she was probably just planning on popping by her lab that was down the street from her office at 10 Amistad Street to check on the mice and make sure her research was okay, and that she was planning on going right back to her office. But she never came back. But what about all the little mice? I don't want to think about the mice, Mogab. Okay, moving on. All right. So the next stop for investigators was her lab, which was located in the basement at 10 Amistad. They took extensive video footage of the basement and took an initial look at her lab, room G13. In the lab were just rows and rows and rows of cages of mice. So if you were standing at the door, you wouldn't be able to see straight back to the back of the lab. They searched the room, but they didn't see anything suspicious to the naked eye. Police figured it was possible that she hadn't made it to the lab. Maybe something had happened to her on her walk from the Amistad building. Yeah. Her lab was in a two-year-old research building full of sensitive information, including animals that many people might have an issue with. So its security was state-of-the-art, not only requiring key cards to enter the building, but also to get into every single room in the building. And when you entered a new section of the building, you also had to sign in on a sign-in sheet. Oh, dang. Certain areas of the building required additional clearance, including the area where Annie's lab was located, and all of the rooms closed automatically behind you. The building was also monitored by 75 security cameras, including cameras posted at all of the building's entrances. They combed through the security footage to confirm whether or not she had even made it to the building, and they were able to find Annie getting to the building just after 10. And there didn't seem to be anything unusual about the way that she was acting on the surveillance footage. She was wearing a green shirt, a brown skirt with mule shoes and little white ankle socks. Cute! <laughs> An image of her from the security footage was used to create a missing persons poster, and it was sent out to the public asking for information on her whereabouts. Annie's family flew in from California. Annie had been born in San Jose, California, and she'd graduated high school in El Dorado, California. Lieutenant Lisa Dadio, who was in charge of major crimes at this time, she went to meet with Annie's family and just see if they could gather more information from them. This was just a few years after the infamous runaway bride case, where a woman had basically faked her own disappearance just before her wedding. And an early theory was that maybe she'd gotten cold feet and had disappeared of her own accord. What? I've never heard of that. I could not imagine. Yeah. I don't ever. I mean, oh, there's your sign. Huh. Yeah, and there was a huge investigation. And maybe I'll do that case then. I'm not going to tell you much about it. Uh. <laughs> the police asked her family how Annie was feeling about the wedding. But all of her family and friends said that she was so excited about the wedding. She'd been in contact with people that were coming in from the wedding, and every single person they spoke with said there was just no way she would have run off. She'd even just spoken with someone the night before about them coming in for the wedding. There didn't seem to be any reason for Annie to disappear, so investigators thought it was possible she'd been kidnapped, and they decided to contact the FBI to ask for their help, because Annie was from California, and her fiancé Jonathan was living out of state on Long Island, and if she was kidnapped, it was highly likely that she'd been taken across state lines, and so anytime a person is kidnapped and brought over state lines, the FBI gets involved. Yale PD also requested help from New Haven police because they realized just how much work would need to be done. Literally dozens and dozens of people needed to be interviewed, including anyone who worked at the lab to see if they'd seen Annie, friends of Annie's, family, and they also needed a lot more manpower to go through the hundreds of hours of security footage from those 75 cameras, as well as people to help man the tip lines from the missing persons posters. So they needed more resources than the Yale Police Department was equipped with. Investigators started combing through all this security footage, looking to find when Annie left the building. They found her walking in. Now they wanted to see when did she leave, hoping that could point them in the right direction of where she went after. Yeah, it's like the first thing I'm looking for. <laughs> right. But they never saw her on the security cameras again. All of the entrances and exits were covered by security cameras, and there was so much to look through that they thought maybe they missed her. 
They went back through the footage over and over again. Oh my God, is this their first rodeo? Look for someone else that's entered. And if they have a some type of suitcase, backpack, recycle bin. they You're getting ahead of them. Uh, All right. Don't well, I, uh, why are they? They I, did. I feel like I could do their job at this point. What are they doing? <laughs> They're coming through hundreds of oh. hours. Well, good. Do it. They went back through the footage over and over again, looking for anything they may have missed. But she never appeared on camera again. They also checked her key card logs because you need your key card to get into any room in the building. They thought maybe they could trace her movements that way, at least her movements inside the building. They saw she'd entered the building at 10.09 in the morning, and then she used her card to get into her lab, room G13, at 10.11. But there was no more activity on her key card after she'd swiped into her lab. One thing police noticed while they were watching the security footage was that at 12.50 the day Annie went missing, crowds of people suddenly started exiting the building at the same time with their ears covered, and police realized the fire alarm must have been going off. They thought they could have missed her in the crowd of people coming out, but even going back and reviewing the footage frame by frame again and again, there was no sign of Annie. They started looking for other explanations for how she could have gotten out of the building. Did someone sneak her out, concealing her in something? Annie was under five feet, and she was only about 90 pounds. She was tiny. So it wouldn't have been hard to put her in something and sneak out with her past the cameras. So they looked at all of the people in the video footage exiting the building to see if anyone was carrying anything that could have fit a small person. But even with tons of people combing frame by frame through all the surveillance footage, they didn't see anything. They know she went into the building, but none of the 75 cameras around the building showed her coming out that day or the next. So a very unpleasant possibility occurred to police. Maybe someone killed her and then threw her out with the trash. That's what I said. So investigators went out to the garbage bins and even the dumps and incinerators where the Yale garbage goes looking for her body or any other evidence they could find, like bloody clothing or just anything. But they didn't find anything. It was like she'd just vanished. Annie's fiancé, Jonathan, flew in from New York to meet with investigators. Yeah, where's he been? That's what I was about to ask. (laughs) Statistically speaking, when someone goes missing, it's the people closest to them that are most likely to be responsible, so they're the first ones that need to be ruled out. Jonathan was on Long Island that day. It's only about two hours away by car, so his alibi still needed to be ruled out, but it wasn't looking like he had anything to do with it. Investigators then went back to the electronic keycard data to see who else was in the building. Was anybody else in the lab at that time? And they saw several people that had been in room G13 that morning. And one of them was 24-year-old lab technician Raymond Clark, or Ray Clark. He'd been working at the Yale Animal Research Center for years. And he was assigned to maintain the research labs on the lower level, including room G13. His job was to basically clean the labs, maintain the animal cages, and just make sure that the whole level was sterile for the research that they were doing. The FBI brought him in for questioning, and he seemed really calm, like he wanted to help find Annie. He said he'd gotten to work around 7 a.m., and that he first saw her around 10.30 wearing a brown skirt and a yellow disposable lab coat. He said he saw her leave her lab sometime between 12.30 to 12.45, with an armful of stuff, including a notebook and two bags of mouse food, and that nothing really seemed out of the ordinary. Investigators now realize that Raymond was probably the last person to see Annie alive, but they don't know where she was going at 12.30 or 12.45, and what was she doing with mouse food? They still haven't found her leaving the building on any of the surveillance cameras. Raymond said he returned to work around 10 minutes after the fire alarm went off and then stayed until 4. So they went back to the cameras and they saw Raymond walking out with everyone else when the fire alarm went off and then went back in at 1.10. The next time they saw him leaving the building at the end of the day, pretty much exactly what he'd said. Police got a small break in the case when one of Annie's coworkers and fellow Yale student, Rachel Roth, told university police officer Sabrina Wood about a box of wipes she'd found. They're called wipe-alls. They're basically commercial-grade paper towels. 
And Rachel said this box she'd found had reddish brown colored stains on it that looked a lot like blood. Blood. She'd found it on a steel push cart inside room G13, the last room Annie had logged into. Investigators had also found a yellow disposable lab coat with similar stains on it. And now they had to wonder if their missing person investigation was turning into a homicide investigation. But they couldn't confirm that yet, because this was in a research lab that used animals, and there could be a number of explanations for the bloodstains, if they even were bloodstains. They weren't even sure of that at this point. So Officer Wood contacted the FBI, let them know what Rachel had told her about the white balls, and then went to G13 to stand guard and wait, because at this point, the lab is still open. They do end up shutting it down later that week, but Annie went missing on a Tuesday. And Wednesday and Thursday, it's still business as usual with people coming and going, doing their jobs. And that's because at this point, they're still treating it like a missing persons case. And they weren't thinking that the lab was necessarily a crime scene. Yeah. Sorry, does this have like a concise end or is it still like... Yes. Okay. Mm. Yeah, it's not unsolved. While Officer Wood is there, Raymond Clark walked in and out of the room several times, looking like he was just doing his job as a lab tech. But Officer Wood said at one point he walked over to the cart where the box of wipes was, and he was looking at it. And he stood between Officer Wood and the box. And then as he turned to face her, he tried to kind of surreptitiously slide the box from one side of the cart to the other, turning the box until the blood faced the other way, out of plain sight. But Officer Wood already knew about the box. She already knew there was bloodstains on the box because of Rachel alerting her to it. And so she saw Raymond's actions as a deliberate attempt to block her view of the box and the blood. Once the box was facing the other way, he leaned against the cart and just started kind of making small talk with her. While investigators continued their search for Annie, Raymond continued to work in the lab. While he was there, he scrubbed the floor drain with steel wool and cleaning solutions. And Officer Wood told investigators she thought it was weird because the drain was already clean. Yeah. But it seemed like Raymond was just in the mood to clean. Another officer, Yale Police Sergeant Jay Jones, saw him scrubbing the floor under a sink near the drain. He also said he thought it was weird because the floor did not need to be cleaned. Okay, wait. I feel like I can speak on this maybe a little bit more out of the mm-hmm. two of us. I uh-huh. I often get in the mood to clean, but I'm uh-huh. never trying to scrub floors. Like on my list of things <laughs> I'm trying to do and I'm cleaning, like I get in the mood to clean and like scrubbing a drain is like never on that list. Mm-mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I no. know you, you know what I mean, <laughs> you know? I know what you mean about scrubbing the drain never being on your list. Yes. Yeah. He said he also saw Clark near the steel cart with the box of disposable wipes on it. The Connecticut State Police are called in by Yale PD because they're still the lead investigators on the case and it's still being treated as a missing persons case because there hasn't been anything definitively telling them that it's murder. Wait, even though it's still a missing persons case, they're not taking the box of wipes and like... She was standing guard to wait for them to come and collect the evidence because she was just like the Yale Police Department officer. And so she was kind of in the room. I don't know why she wasn't like, stop touching that. It's evidence. But I just kind of was like, shouldn't this be like bagged up already? But got it. Yes. At this point, there are hundreds of investigators working around the clock on this case. Investigators decide to look further into Raymond, not just because of his suspicious actions and the fact that he was one of the only people in that lab at the same time as Annie, but also because the key card logs showed some other weird behavior. From 1040 to 345 that afternoon, Raymond went in and out of G13 and another room down the hall, G22, 55 times. What? That's a lot of times. That is a lot of times in like four or five hours. G22 was not a room Raymond was expected to be in. And this type of activity on his card, this running around, was not something he'd ever done before, according to his previous key card data. And when they went to look back at him on the surveillance cameras, they realized that when he walked out during the fire alarm, 
he was wearing different clothes from the ones he wore when he walked back in. What? Okay, that's too – this is too obvious, though. It can't be him. When he walked out, police could see a red drawstring on the blue scrubs that he was wearing. But when he came back, the blue scrubs had a blue drawstring. They were different pants. The FBI issued polygraphs to everyone with access to the labs in the Amistad building, which included Raymond and his fiancée, Jennifer Ramadka. Oh. I'm not 100% sure I'm saying that right, but we're going with that. He's got a – he has a fiancée. He does. He has a fiancée. Jennifer passed her polygraph, but Raymond failed his. Usual disclaimer, polygraphs are not <laughs> evidence of guilt. Wait, there can you know- be many reasons a person fails. <laughs> you know how we feel about those, though. <laughs> But add that to the growing list of suspicious actions from Raymond, and it's not looking great See? for the guy. <laughs> there it is. Yep. So three days after Annie went missing, they are now running under the assumption that foul play is involved with Annie's disappearance. They don't think there's any way that this is just a missing person's case. So because they no longer think Annie was taken anywhere, the FBI bows out. They don't have jurisdiction anymore. And New Haven Major Crimes is now leading the investigation. They have six detectives, a sergeant, and a lieutenant assigned to the case, and they decide to go back to the basement, especially room G13, to go over it again with more scrutiny. This time, they found a tiny speck of blood on one of the instruments in the lab, as well as a medium-velocity blood-like spray pattern on the wall that someone had tried to clean up after the fact. Gross. I hate everything about what you just said. <laughs> medium-velocity spray pattern? Mm-hmm. Blood-like spray pattern. Okay, thank you. I Yeah, I got that part. So they start tearing the room apart. They even go up into the ceiling tiles because there were a lot of dropped ceilings in this basement. And up there, in the ceiling of the basement, they found a stash of items. (gasps) There was a bloody white ankle sock, a rubber glove with blood stains, and a pair of Viking brand work boots with what looked like blood stains on them that were labeled Ray C. Oh, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the boots was missing its shoelaces. They expanded their search to the rest of the basement, including room G22, which was five doors down from Annie's lab, and it was the other room Raymond had been in and out of all day. He'd actually been in there 11 times in the time period when Annie went missing, which police figured was sometime after her key card was scanned into G13 at 1011, and before the fire alarm went off at 1250, since she hadn't been seen exiting with everyone else. In G22, they found bloodstains as well as hairs and two beads from a necklace that they were able to match to the necklace Annie was wearing when she went into the building. Okay. According to the key card logs, Raymond was the only person that had been in G22 that day. I don't buy it. I'm not – I don't buy it. (laughs) But still, no sign of Annie. On Saturday, September 12th, Annie has now been missing for four days. And the New Haven Police Department hold a major briefing at FBI headquarters with everyone involved in the case to talk about progress made and to formulate a plan of what to do next. Wait, wasn't September 12th her wedding day? The 13th, the next day. Their main goal was to find Annie. Also, it's a media circus at this point. They've descended on New Haven en masse from all over the world and are camping out at the Amistad building and police headquarters with tents and everything, trying to get footage and statements anywhere they could. So the New Haven Police Department had set up their staging area at the FBI headquarters, which was a lot more secure than their police headquarters, and no one knew that they were there. On Saturday, September 12th, investigators were in the basement of 10 Amistad when they started to smell a terrible odor. (gasps) One unmistakable to anyone who has ever smelled it before, decomposition. People that have smelled it say that nothing else in the world smells like that. I've never smelt it. No, God willing, I never will. They knew that that meant Annie's body was somewhere in that basement, but they couldn't tell where the smell was coming from. 
They kept going in circles around the basement trying to find her, but they just couldn't figure it out. There didn't seem to be any place that she could be. There were no places in the walls that looked like new sheetrock had been painted over to hide a body. There were no signs of her in the ceiling. They didn't know where else to look, so they made the decision to bring cadaver dogs in. (gasps) Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The last time we talked about cadaver dogs, I think might have been in the Scott Peterson case. Yes. And then we revisited it. (laughs) Yes. Cadaver dogs are dogs trained to alert on dead bodies. And investigators were hopeful that the dog's amazing sense of smell could lead them to Annie. Which, like, what a very unique skill set, (laughs) could we just say? Yes, and, you know, a very sad one because they're not – They're not there to save the person. You know, there are like search and rescue dogs that are trained to like smell humans, like sniff out humans, but Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these are not. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. But New Haven Police Department doesn't have dogs, so they had to call into the Connecticut State Police. And then they also had to jump through a whole bunch of red tape to bring the dogs into this secure, sterile research facility. But investigators knew they needed the dogs to find Annie. Lieutenant Lisa Dadio did a talk on on this. Like, I watched her on YouTube give a presentation on this case. And she was like, we did not care <laughs> about their sterile research facility. <laughs> I mean, we yeah. We said we need the dogs. <laughs> we need the dogs. So it wasn't until the next day that they're able to bring the dogs in, which was Sunday, September 13th, Annie's wedding day. The dogs lead investigators to Where's her fiance? Where's her fiance? Like at this moment, I don't I think he's still in New Haven. I don't think he's gone back to Long Island. The dogs lead investigators to a locker room just outside G22, the other lab that Ray Clark had been in and out of the day that Annie went missing. Mm-hmm. In the locker room was a wall that had like a small metal utility access panel on it. And the dog started alerting on the wall. The only way into the wall is through this panel. So they opened it to reveal about a two-foot crawl space behind the wall. Oh, crawl spaces. And there, dumped upside down into the crawl space (sighs) through that metal panel, was the body of Annie Lay. Around her neck was a broken necklace with beads matching the beads found in G22. And she was missing a white ankle sock. Mm. Oh, this is so sad. I know. When I watched Lieutenant Dadio give a presentation on the case on YouTube, when she was talking about finding Annie's body on her wedding day, like, she started to get choked up. And she said, you know, in investigations like this, you're always hoping that you'll find them safe. And though they were glad that they had found her, it was not in the way that they hoped. And to find her on her wedding day just made it it. even more sad. I know. I feel so sad. Under her body, investigators found a green pen, which turned out to be incredibly significant. Oh. 
So like I said before, every time you entered a new part of the building, not only did you have to scan your key card, but you were also required to sign into these logs. And when police had checked the sign-in logs, Raymond Clark had signed his name in green Hmm. ink. No one else had used a green pen. But when he signed out at 348, the ink color changed. He didn't have the green pen anymore. Now he was signing out in black. This green pen was huge in linking Raymond Clark to the murder. So he did it? He did it? An autopsy was performed on Annie by the medical examiner. She had trauma to her face area, including a broken jaw and a broken clavicle, as well as bruising to the back of her head, consistent with an assault. Her cause of death was traumatic asphyxiation caused by neck compressions. (sighs) She'd been strangled to death. Her bra had been pulled up and her underwear had been pulled down, so investigators thought an attempt was made to sexually assault her. Now that they knew that Annie has been murdered, they went back to Raymond Clark's key card logs and all of the other evidence they'd found, and they finally start to piece together their theory about what happened to her based on on all this evidence. They know she swiped into her lab at 1011, and based upon interviews with other people working down there that saw her, they know that she was alive around 1020 a.m. or so. At 1035, Raymond Clark returned from break and checked his email, and five minutes later at 1040, he entered G13, and then he went back in at 1104. He doesn't enter any other rooms for 40 minutes, and police are certain that that is the time that he killed her. She had only been in the building for like an hour. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Investigators believed that she was initially attacked in G13 in the back of the lab because of the blood they found back there in an area that you can't see from the door because of all the rows of cages blocking the view to the back. There was a lot of evidence that she put up one hell of a fight. Oh, yes. And she did not make it easy for him, despite him having a foot and probably a 100 pounds on her. There were scratch marks on his face and arm that he told investigators were from his cat, but they didn't look like cat scratches. (laughs) After he killed her, police are thinking that he panicked and he moved her to G22 to find a place to hide the body. But before he could, the fire alarm went off. Initially, police were fairly certain that the fire alarm was connected to this case in some way, but it actually wasn't. It didn't have anything to do with it. And it actually seemed to foil his plan a bit. So he quickly changes his blue scrubs into another pair and he walks out with everyone else. And then after he came back inside, he went back to G22 and he moved Annie to the locker room next door and he put her in the wall (gasps) through that access panel. Police put out search and seizure warrants for Raymond Clark to collect DNA samples from him under court order, hair samples, buckle and oral swabs blood and fingerprints, as well as a search warrant for his car and apartment. Yeah. Boy, bye. Okay. Boy, bye. They searched his apartment, the car that was in his driveway, the car that he'd gone home in that day, all looking for evidence to connect him to the crime. I know I loved how you were still like, no, you're tricking me. I know, but <laughs> this like- is too easy. But I do feel that <laughs> way still. I'm confused. I'm like over here like, he didn't do it. And then boy, bye. <laughs> I'm the worst. Connecticut State Police are also still processing the crime scene because this was a massive research facility. And there was evidence hidden all over the building, in the dropped ceilings, down drains in the labs, absolutely everywhere. And the police had to find all of it. Whoever had done this had to have known the building incredibly well. So well that it took 100 investigators five days to find her body. The DNA and blood results all come back, and over and over again, only two names are popping up, Annie Lay and Raymond Clark. All the blood found on the lab coat, the sock, and the rubber glove were Annie's. Raymond's DNA came back on the lab coat and the white sock. Both of their DNA was also found on the green pen. An arrest warrant was put out for Raymond Clark. They found him at a hotel in Cromwell, which is like 30 miles from Yale, 
on September 17th and arrested him for murder. His father later made a statement that Raymond had expressed extreme remorse from the beginning and that he had sobbed uncontrollably, saying how sorry he was. Wait, so he did do it. Yes, he did. Did you not just hear the preponderance of evidence against him? I did, but I just... (laughs) Our our relationship and our trust has, like, ever since we started this, I mean... You can't tell me anything now, and I'm not questioning it. Dang, now I know I can trick you by just, like, laying on a crap ton of evidence. I know. Ugh. Oh, I know the exact case I want to do next. Oh, wow, <laughs> I can't believe this. What What is the reasoning here? Well, give me one paragraph to get into okay, that. Okay, well, hurry it up. So, okay, so he's all boo-hooing. I'm so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. But police discovered the extreme extent that Raymond had gone to to cover his tracks and to just try to get away with it all. He'd come to the lab the day after Annie's murder with a backpack full of fishing line, hooks, and bubble gum and used the items to try to get that green pen and possibly other evidence out from the crawl space. I'm sorry, with gum? That's what I mean. Yeah, he was going to like put a piece of like gum on a hook on a fishing line and try to, like, get it down there and get the pen. You work at Yale and you're in a lab facility and the best thing he you got He didn't graduate from Yale. I know, but I mean, like, there's other <laughs> smart people in that community and you're in a lab. Should he have asked them? <laughs> I did get my own truck window out with packing tape and a spatula. I am I feel like ridiculously impressed by you for that story, Thank actually. you. So I at least would have maybe not tried gum. <laughs> All right. Fair point. Fair. He'd used air freshener to try and hide the odor in the locker uh, room. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I thought I was out on the gum. Now my man's bringing for breeze. <laughs> uh. He'd even drafted notes to his coworkers asking them to back up an alibi for him. Uh. Police found the notes in hidden in his socks. So why would Ray Clark kill Annie Lay? Like what possible motive could there be? You don't need a motive to prove guilt, especially with the preponderance of evidence they have against him. I got that. But it sure helps. Police start looking into it, and what they find is almost nothing. (sighs) He had no prior criminal history. He'd been working at the lab for many years. There had been no previous documented incidents reported at his job. They couldn't even find much of a connection between Ray and Annie, except that he maintained the lab that you know, she did her experiments out of. Right. She never reported any problems between them. There were no texts between them. Nothing. At least that's what Lieutenant Daddio said in the presentation that I watched. But there were several news outlets that claim they got information from sources leading to a possible motive. So take this information with a grain of salt. This was like ABC News and (laughs) somebody else. And the police are saying, no, there was nothing between them. But they're saying that first off, anonymous coworkers of Ray's reportedly said that he was a control freak who clashed with scientists that he worked with at 10 Amistad. Like he would get really angry if people weren't wearing shoe covers was the example that they gave. But Lieutenant Daddio said that no one at the lab that they interviewed, and they interviewed like everybody, no one had anything negative to say about Ray. They said he always did a good job, and he really cared about the animals, and he just kind of kept himself. They also said they didn't find any texts or emails between them, but ABC News said that Ray had sent Annie a text on the day that she disappeared, asking to meet about the cleanliness of the mice cages, saying that she was being too lax with protocols intending to the mice. Another news source reported that she'd recently sent out an email announcing her wedding, and that she'd be out for several days for her honeymoon. So police were kind of thinking that it was possible that maybe he was angry about something to do with the lab, or that he got jealous when he saw that email about her getting married. Hmm. Like maybe he was just infatuated with her and then just went into a rage when he found out that she was getting married. But he was getting married too. Yeah. But there was a lot of rage in her murder, and that theory made sense to investigators. Also, an ex-girlfriend came out, and this is her story. This has not been proven in any 
trial in any court of law. But she came out and said that he had been violent with her in the past, but she'd never reported it. So there wasn't anything on his record showing that he had a history of violence like this. Obviously not blaming her for not reporting. We have talked about that so many times in so many other episodes about why you wouldn't. Why you would not report. I mean, there's a preponderance of reasons. (laughs) There's (laughs) Yes. 18 months after his arrest, Raymond Clark III pled guilty. Pled guilty. 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 He pled guilty. He he pled guilty. He pled guilty. Tell me more about that. To murder and attempted sexual assault, though they let him take an Alfred plea for the sexual assault, which, whatever. I don't know what that means. It means that he maintains his innocence while admitting that they have enough evidence to convict him. It's basically a way to plead guilty while maintaining your evidence at the same time. It's so stupid. How do you maintain your evidence? And how do you plead? You maintain your innocence. So you're saying that I'm innocent of this, but I am taking an Alfred plea. So I'm admitting that you have enough evidence to convict me, but I'm still saying I didn't do it. That sounds stupid. It is stupid. Who's Alfred? Alfred. Alfred. We'll go into that. I don't know. Maybe we'll go into who's Alfred and why is his plea so stupid. <laughs> and it, it's just, it's really stupid because what it ends up doing, what it ends up, it, it ends up being a tool used frequently. Well, I don't want to say frequently, but I don't know. It's been used several times. The West Memphis Three comes to mind specifically. You know, I don't know who that is, right? You reference <sighs> them a lot. You know, I don't know anything about that. Correct. I told you about it in the in the Richard Glossop episode. No, you gave me in like episode a, numero one. No, you reference it and like give a little thing, but like I don't know the story there. Look, am I am I about to summarize the West Memphis three for no, you? No, you're right probably here? about to do an episode on it, I'm sure. It's, it's too big. It's so big. <laughs> I'll probably do it. Okay. Anyways, basically my point is prosecutors use it a lot. When they're faced with wrongful conviction and they realize that they have a wrongful conviction on their hands and that the people have a real case in their appeal and that they could probably win. So instead of fighting them, instead of retrying them, they give them an Alfred plea. And their Alfred plea usually comes with the benefit of being released from prison Mm -hmm. for these wrongful convictions. But... They are not exonerated, and okay. they cannot be exonerated, and that means that they can, they are not eligible for any kind of like payment or mm. whatever you call it for the you know sometimes decades and decades that they spent in prison for a crime they didn't commit. So yeah, yeah. that is often how it is used. Raymond Clark was originally charged with murder and felony murder. And he was facing, which I I Googled, what's the difference between murder and felony murder yeah. in Connecticut? And all I could get was stuff about felony murder. And it didn't, I didn't see a difference. So I feel like murder should definitely always be a felony. That's kind of my thinking also. Like, yeah. Isn't manslaughter even a felony? Like, right? Yeah. I don't know. So I don't know what uh, lawyers out there, especially in Connecticut. No, I'm done talking to them because they won't help (laughs) us out one bit. Well, and the problem is every single state has a different definition of murder. (laughs) Like there are some states where they don't have like degrees of murder, you know? Yeah. Maybe no lawyers listen to us because it would be like you listening to like a teacher podcast, you know, after like a long day of work. Like maybe... Lawyers don't listen to true crime. Oh, if I actually knew what I was talking about, it would drive me insane listening to true crime podcasts by non-lawyers. Right. That's probably why they're not talking to us. Yeah, for sure. All right. So he was originally charged with murder and felony murder. We don't know the difference. And (laughs) sue us, okay? (laughs) But please don't also. Oh, yeah. No, I never want to do that again. And he was facing 120 years. But because he pled guilty, he got 44 years for her murder. Whoa, what? How do you go from 120 to 44? That's what plea deals are for. So that they didn't have to go to a trial. Like he, you know, saved them from having to go through a trial. I guess. Because he probably didn't want to see the literal parade of evidence. (laughs) But it's like, like, maybe he didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 
But he saves them from going to trial, but then, like, he saved himself. Like. Yeah, but, I mean, he could have been found not – he could have been found not guilty and well, gotten no Could he, years. according to you? It seems <laughs> highly unlikely. I don't know. With jurors like you. <laughs> well, unfortunately, due to this podcast, I won't ever get that experience, so. I don't know. Maybe. Hope you're happy. A candlelight vigil was held for Annie the Monday after her body was found where hundreds of friends and students and people from Yale gathered in her memory. Her roommate, Natalie, she spoke and described Annie as a kind and generous and thoughtful person who was tougher than people thought. At her memorial service, her fiancé, Jonathan Wadowski, was wearing the wedding ring that Annie would have given him. Oh, my God. I... If Raymond Clark wasn't such a ridiculous excuse for a human being. That's all you had to say. My heart just stopped. Like, I cannot. I know. I know. Uh, it's like they were so close. See, this is the problem. Now I'm going to go downstairs. I'm like, babe, we got to get married tomorrow. <laughs> Russell, the, the things that I – this podcast is going to be my relationships undoing because I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh. You better have a where, where is he now for me. And if not, you better Google it. I couldn't find anything about Jonathan Wadowski past her memorial service, like her Uh funeral in 2009. So I'm not sure where he is now. I actually think I did find him on LinkedIn, but I wasn't going to stalk him that bad. Jonathan. I hope he has found happiness despite this awful tragedy. That is awful. Yeah. And that's the story of the murder of Annie Lay. Well, I hated that. (laughs) That was really sad, and I really thought you were going to pull a fast one on me, so I was, like, <laughs> really trying to see through all your bullshit, and it was just really sad and really true. I know. I just, like, don't know. I don't understand enough about why. Nobody does. He has never said why he did this. And he just, like, pled guilty. Like, and he not just pled guilty. Tried to, like, mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I just don't understand it. And Lisa Daddio, the um, lieutenant that talked about this case, that presented this case on YouTube, she said that his lawyers probably will never let him say why he did it. Oh, and yeah, now that it's, like, done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So will he get – is there a chance for parole? Or no, that's not how that works. In 44 years, I think. Yeah. Mm. Well, that is really sad. Yeah, that better be a hard 44. Let me double check. A hard sentence. 44. What's that mean? Yeah. It means that you have to serve that amount of years before you can. Not like you can get out on like 25. Parole. Yeah. Right. We're not, we're not doing that. We're not doing that here. Raymond Clark. What does he even sentence. look like? He's like not, I mean, not like what you would expect. Like not like a Like this is his mugshot. Oh, shit. Hang on. Whoa. I would not have. That's not what I would have at all. No. I know. I just, like, can't imagine. That's it. I got to go get married tomorrow. Um. Okay. Let me know so I can get my plane ticket. Okay. <laughs> all right. Mogab, did you know? It's shout out time. That if you join our Patreon at any level, it doesn't even matter, $5, $7, $10, Every level gets a shout out. Every dollar makes us holler. Every every dollar makes us holler for these shout outs. (laughs) But did you know that I forgot? Did you know that I'm trying to make a shout out jingle? I don't have anything yet. But if people want to suggest shout out jingles. Shout out, shout out, it's shout out time with Kristen and Moya. Oh, I like it. I actually have a, now I just have Wildest Dreams stuck in my head. Oh. Thanks to that. (laughs) Okay. Should I go first? Oh, yeah, because it says, uh, I appreciate everyone that has been trying to trip me up on these shout outs, but I think I've done pretty good. I love how everyone's (laughs) like. We're gonna. I'm the one saying the terrible things. I know. <laughs> I'm the one messing up so bad, and I'm the one who wanted the phonetically spelled out names that I wouldn't mess up. <laughs> I know. But my first one, though, the famous adjacent newbie, Jerilyn 
Dalman? I feel like See, you know it's funny. I knew you were gonna say Dalman and I wanna say Dalman. Because you wanna say Dalmatian. That's yes. why. <laughs> Gerilyn weigh in, sis. What is it? Why is it Dalman say, or Dalman? Why would you say Dalmatian? Dalmatian. No, that is stop it. Stop. I know apparently <laughs> Yeah, I, everyone slide into Kristen's DMs until she says Dalmatian, like an idiot. All right, major thanks to Tiffany M. Who wants to thank Larissa B? Did Larissa <laughs> convince Tiffany to join? Uh, Wait, Tiffany, then- you can't use our shout outs to shout out <laughs> other people. <laughs> she did, though. She said, you're my girl, Larissa. <laughs> you're my <laughs> Tiffany, girl. that'll be an extra five. <laughs> yeah. Larissa, why aren't you on this shout out? That's yeah, Larissa, would you like a shout out? <laughs> a, a shout out for yourself? <laughs> you want your own shout out? Because now she got one for free. <laughs> uh, major shouts to Mindy Faber, parentheses, LOL, parentheses. <laughs> Faber. Guys, you're doing a great job with these phonetically spelled out names. I, I'm loving this. This is so fun. All right, a big thanks to Meg Mallory and Colorfly Studio. I wonder what that is. Is oh, do you happen to do hair color? Because if oh. so, <laughs> your girl, your girl up. Yeah, your oh. girl needs all the help. <laughs> it, I I'm not sure, but if that is, let me know. Yes, and a big thanks to Erin Bracolo. She got the emphasis in there and everything. That's a great. Phonetically spelled out name. Thank you, Aaron Brocolo. You go, Aaron Brocolo. It's like Glenn you Coco. Go, Brocolo. <laughs> you go. She Glenn probably Coco. gets that all the time. I know. Do you get but... that all the time, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> this is becoming our favorite part of the show. It's like we're talking I just to them. Love they it. can't respond. Yeah. This is what I want my life to be. I just want to talk at people and they can't respond to me. <laughs> just talking at people. Oh. That's what I do the whole time. <laughs> yeah, you're that's the only your one that life. can respond to me. <laughs> And you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't. I don't have the time. <laughs> do you remember on the last episode? I don't know where it's going to end up. But when you you asked me to do the Patreon, I like really didn't know. And you're like, do you even know? And I was like, no. <laughs> like, do you even go I think here? that episode drops Thursday. I can't wait. <laughs> you're like, like, do yeah. you even go no, here? I'm a disaster. But. <laughs> Thank the people, Mogab. Do I have to? Thank the people. Thank you, people, for be. Thank you for being here today. You're the best. What accent is that? What has? What accent is that? Is that like? Do you know what that's from? Southern asshole. No. Thank you for being here today. That's Julie Andrews from Princess Diaries, which you know I was obsessed with. Oh, thank, thank you, you for, for being, being here, here today. today. You did it wrong. Thank oh, you for being I here did today. Not. Yes, you did. Okay. Well, thank you for thank being here today. Thank you for being here today. Everyone except for Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> Follow us on social media. Join the Facebook discussion group. The content in there has been, I mean, amazing. It's bar none. I, I can't handle there it. There is currently, y'all, I don't know if I cut this at the beginning. If I did, I'm going to say it here. There is a picture in the Facebook group where somebody Put Mogab's <laughs> face, a wild face. We need to know where that picture came I've from never because seen we have photo. no idea. The only reason I know it's you is because I recognized your nose. I zoomed in and I was like, is that even? Anyways, <laughs> it's Mogab's wild face on Taylor Swift's body in the wildest dream. Don't worry. It is not a deep fake, y'all. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I wish it was like. <laughs> if my face could be like really on Taylor Swift's body in Wildest Dreams, I could I could die happy. Like I that's it. That's all I need. I'll peak. I'll quit the podcast. You'll never see <laughs> Nobody me. Nobody do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you have to check it out. Gotta. We we're derailing. We are derailing. Okay. You know, follow us on the social medias that we're on Instagram, Twitter. Facebook at Creepers Pod, the Facebook discussion group. And uh, if we get 500 reviews by the end of November, my God, this is never going to happen. Mogab says she'll put the wildest dreams picture as her profile picture. And I've never wanted anything more. Because it's the worst photo I've ever seen myself. <laughs> really this, terrible. This can't I exist. I have to know on, where that photo I know. came from. This can't exist on the internet, right? <laughs> What am I doing? So, 
please, please make this happen. It doesn't even have, it's just a rating. It's a five-star rating. That would be great. We got our five stars back, so nobody out there ruin it for us, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you're embarrassing us. You're embarrassing me. All right, so just cut it. And it's good. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the episode. That's where we guys. end it. That's, that's where it. you say goodbye to us. It's over here. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs> <laughs>